Well, it's morning. This morning I'm going to talk at kind of making the road to the cross uh, this morning, and uh, we're three weekends, so this is this weekend, one more weekend, and then Easter, and uh, man, I've already, I've had to be like so careful because my Easter message has probably been on me the last couple of months, and it, and the, the weird thing is I don't plan like Easter messages, uh, but I've had a lot of thought towards things that uh, like here lately, um, and I'm not going to get into too much because it's my Easter matches, but, you know, I chew on stuff. I'll, I'll think about stuff for a long time. One, one of the things, for instance, I thought about for a long time before I ever came to any kind of conclusion biblically about what it could mean. Um, I still, when I studied Jeremiah, and I still study Jeremiah, I constantly am listening to Jeremiah uh, in that book here lately. When I, I've been getting up in the morning and doing some walking and then just letting the Bible app read Jeremiah to me over and over and uh, I don't know if it's because I pull the headphone jack out, but it's like I never get past chapter 9. You know, by the time I get to chapter 9, I'm like done walking, and I pull the headphones out, and it just starts over. I don't know why it doesn't start at chapter 9. I can make it, I guess, start at chapter 9, but I just keep listening to the first part. But one of the things that always has struck me, and I've talked about it in here is for is what do you see? Jeremiah, what do you see? Jeremiah, what do you see? Uh, there's a moment where God asks Elijah, get up, go look outside, tell me what you see. What do you see? What do you see? And I used to think, you know, there's got to be something more to that. It just seems like, yeah, I get that God's just asking him, what does he see? But what, I mean, what's the big deal? What if he, I mean, is it spiritually seen? What does it matter? You know, God can just show him what's the big point that he sees it. And, and I've preached it in here that we're, because we're only responsible for what we see. I mean, I'm, I, 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 I'm going to tell you something. I chewed on that for like two years to come up with that conclusion. And maybe I'm not that smart, I mean, but I've never heard anybody talk about that maybe before because they miss it because it's mundane. But for whatever reason, you know, God sticks something in your crawl. Is that a word? I think that's a word. It's a country word. All right. And, and, and God sticks something in you, and you're like chewing on it. Like, I don't know why that, I mean, normally that, most people say, what do you see? And they just go right over that thing. It's like, oh, God's talking to Jeremiah, and that's it. And that's the, like the whole, but to, for me, there was something bigger there. And I, don't, I couldn't tell you for years what it was. But for two years, I remember writing in my journal, Jim, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see? What is God showing you? And so for two years, I, would chew, I chewed on this thing. Can I tell you what, what I'm bringing in Easter? I've been chewing on for probably about eight months, maybe. And God, I feel like finally God gave me like the answer that I was looking for. Like literally maybe out of sheer frustration. So like you, you want to talk about a relief? It's going to be an unbelievable relief for me to preach on Easter. <laughs> Just to get this thing out because I'm excited about what I think it is. And, uh, and believe it or not, I think it's, it's, it's funny. It's an Old Testament story that drives me straight to Calvary. And, uh, um, and so I'm excited to share that. But it starts here. And uh, so, I, I, you know, if there was going to be a series, I don't know if I'm going to make this a series or individual stuff. I, I don't really like the idea of, like, creating a topical thing and making something. I'd rather just give you where I feel the Lord is at, where I'm at. You know, where spiritually I'm at walking with God. And as he talks to me, I've never heard God go, going to give you a series. It's going to be a four-month thing that we're going to need you to label this down, Jim, because you're going to have to do the graphic work for this. And you're going to have to create videos uh, for this. Like, God doesn't speak to me that way. I don't know if he speaks to other guys like that. I know they do a great job coming up with series, but I'm scared of topical preaching all the time because I'm scared that if I'm not careful, I'll preach my own soapbox agenda before I preach the Word of God. And so uh, I don't have a lot of confidence in my own flesh. <laughs> don't want to put down anybody else that might be way better at that than me. Uh, it's just for me, I'm not confident. So 
Uh, for me, this, is the, this, this next three weeks is really the road to the cross for me. And that's all I'm studying, all that I'm reading about is anything that talks about or that relates to Christ going to the cross. But, I, but for today, I think it starts in a place that may be, um, uh, it may be not so happy. Uh, uh, today, I, I, I believe that it all begins in the desert. And I'm going to explain that a little bit this morning. I've never actually been to an official desert. Uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of things, man. I've driven to El Paso close enough, right? Um, you know, I, I grew up in Kaufman, Texas. No, that's a, that's a joke. It's not a desert there. Uh, actually, the closest thing I can even compare to being desert was actually being in Somalia. That's probably the closest thing, right? It's dry, sand everywhere. Uh, there was a little bit of foliage there, but there really was, like, there was no grass. Uh, uh, more like if there was a tree or bush, it looked like it was dying and on its last limb, like it's sucking up every water that they could get from the ground somehow, like every moisture there could be, right? And, and I mean, like any civilization that was there was literally dying. I mean, like the people that are there, they're like dying. And uh, the temperatures would get as hot as, I literally had a little Casio watch that would tell the temperature at the time. And like the sad part is like in the, in the middle of the day, I couldn't tell if it was just the sun bouncing off of it or what, but it would say like 126, 127, and all the time I'm thinking, that's a lie. There's no way. 126 degrees? <laughs> that's got to be a lie, but that's what it would say, like 126, 127 all the time, and I just always just pass it off as it's lying. That's got to be a lie. It's got to be like 98. Come on, I live in Texas. We know heat, but it was hot there, and uh, at night, man, it did cool down. It would get to about 95, 98, and that was that was pretty cool at night. And like, I mean, like there's just no, there really wasn't a break from the heat. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how some deserts are. This desert was the type that you literally, when we slept on cots the whole time I was there pretty much, which I was happy it wasn't on the ground. And you had these mesquite nettings because if your hand or any extremity slept outside that netting at night, right, you're probably going home with malaria or tuberculosis uh, I came away with that one uh, from, from Somalia and, and had to go through all this uh, drug treatment and stuff to treat the tuberculosis exposed to that. You know, <clears throat> uh, welcome to mosquitoes. Good gracious. I, I don't know why God made those. Uh, I can't find anywhere biblically they should have been made. You know, maybe that's part of the serpent. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I won't give the devil that much credit that he can create too much of anything, but maybe there's a reason why. Maybe, I, I don't know, you know, there's a reason why, and I don't know what that is, but it was a place of ruin and a place of disease. And now, I know Somalia is like a desert in a lot of ways, but spiritually speaking, a desert basically is any place you find yourself in a season of hardship or difficulty. Or how about dryness? Just dryness, right? And if I gave you some time, I know that you could probably, you know, you're going to have some, your own deserts. You could tell me from experience your, your deserts and about your deserts. One thing's for sure, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, you're going to find desert places where men and women were forged into something more. And so we're going to start, um, we're going to start with Moses. We'll take, 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 for, take for instance, Moses. We'll start there. Moses was this young man who uh, was groomed for Egyptian leadership, right? You know the story. I don't have to tell anybody the whole story in here. You know the story. He was groomed uh, as from a child taken out of the water. He's groomed for Egyptian leadership, and his life was set up. I mean, legitly set up. Life in the palace or the pyramid, whatever that was. A great education. He's grafted into the most royal family of all the land. Life is good for Moses. 
but it became a surprise to him who he belonged to. And you know the story, right? He, he belonged to a different, a different ethnic, ethnic group, right? He belonged to the Jews. And from that knowledge began to set forth a series of choices for Moses. And he uh, made some bad ones, right? He, he kills an Egyptian. It runs him out of Egypt because he knows what's at stake now, his own life. And for over 40 years, Moses remains in the desert. Actually, this desert's called Midian. Uh, it was a land where Egyptian heritage held no weight. And his Jewish ancestry had no merit either. Nobody cared who Moses was. I know you were Mr. Somebody where you came from. You're nobody here. Right? So there in Midian, his pride's basically gone. Can't be prideful who you are. You know, at this point, you know, he's thinking probably what he is is a murderer. Right? He doesn't know anything about farming, pretty much farming area. In Midian, his education in Egyptian leadership is worthless. <laughs> Everything you've been trained for. Right? In Midian, Moses has nothing to offer. So the de his desert or this desert for him produces humility. In a man who had everything and in a moment lost everything. The prince had become a shepherd. And check this out. Not even a shepherd of his own flock. <laughs> no, he took care of his father-in-law's sheep. He didn't even own anything. He worked for the man who did. Moses found humility there. And he also found peace there. But it's not easy, right? I mean, like the whole thing to that, that to go from in the palace to just working for somebody like a slave. Now, I'm not saying that working for Jethro was bad, but it's not being a prince. It's not being waited on hand and foot, having the finest of linens clothed upon you. Uh, now I smell like the sheep and nobody wants to stay in the same tent with me. You know, I mean, it's, it's a different environment and it's a strange one. And he's kind of at 40 years in, he's kind of come to grips. This is his life. And he's happy and he finds a contentment there. Like I can do this and humility there. And, and he, it takes 40 years, I think, for him to get there. Right. But then the Bible says something that basically he encounters something there in the desert that's unexpected. Exodus 3. Verses 1 through 6, one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I have to go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses. Here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, in the middle of Moses' crisis of life, 40 years deep within his desert season, when just about all thoughts of leading Jews out of captivity, remember, that's why the murder begins. Any thought about this had left his mind. It's there that he finds the great I am. A bush on fire and yet not physically burning. He experiences something so supernatural that his life is forever changed. And before you start thinking that all this seemed easy, just, just remember that Moses is a fugitive from Egypt. He had to forget all of his royal education and royal privileges. And this wasn't an overnight process. 
He didn't see the bush as soon as he got out to the desert. He waited 40 years. It took 40 years of life chipping away at him. Right? 40 years, there was no voice, only the sound of sheep. And yet something finally happened that would change the course of history, not just the history of Moses, but the history of his family, of the Jews, and even of the Egyptians. 40 years in the desert. 40 years. And then what about Elijah? This wild prophet shows up out of nowhere in a time where Israel's ruled by a wicked king and queen. And his story is different from Moses. Right? God sends him into the desert. Guess what, Elijah? You're going in. You're going to tell them there's no rain coming. It's going to be it hard. I mean, this desert has Elijah traveling from one place to the next. God shuts the rains off for a season and desperate time rolls across the land. First Kings chapter 17 records the weak prophet trying to survive a bleak existence. God, you told me it's going to happen. Now I'm living in it. And from one minute, listen, he's eating food from the birds and drinking from a creek. Desperate life. To the next time, he's supernaturally creating some abundance of food and raising the dead in a widow's house to whom he doesn't know. And ultimately, he finds himself in a showdown between all the prophets of Baal on Mount Karma and against the king and the queen. That's a rough life you just found yourself into. Like I love, I always have said this and I've always preached this. I love how Elijah's time as a prophet starts out. It just says, now Elijah. Like, I think his life was normal, and then all of a sudden, uh, Elijah, I'm about to throw you in the biggest desert time of your life. And how do we know? Like, there's all these supernatural things that happen in the desert. Just like Moses seeing the burning bush, and there's a supernatural effect that took place upon Moses there in the desert. Well, that's the same with Elijah. Elijah's thrust into the desert, and it just starts easy. Uh, 1 Kings chapter uh, 16, first word, now. That's when it starts. Elijah, now. Here comes your desert, where you're going to feel all alone. You're going to feel isolated. Oh, yeah, you're going to experience the most greatest things of your life all by yourself. You're going to feel absolute solitude, absolute loneliness. And there are moments where we see Elijah so confident in God in this desert time, and yet there are moments where we see him completely terrified. He has so many ups and downs in this desert. Just when you think you got it figured out, it throws you for a loop, right? I mean, he seems like a man who's meant for the desert, a man who lives and exists for the desert. I mean, I would have almost called him a specialist. I mean, if we were to go through the amazing things that Elijah saw in this desert moment of life, he'd think about it. He'd be the only person we, we'd ever talk about. I mean, like this guy did crazy things in the desert. He comes out of it feeling what? Lonely. Nobody's here yet. Everybody's here. I mean, he meets people all kinds of along the way, and yet he's completely lonely the entire time he's there. But the funny thing about this is what else did he experience in the desert? When he comes to the end of his desert experience, he experiences what? He never tastes death and chariots of fire. Amazing things happen for Elijah. So while he's struggling with loneliness, isolation, solitude, this feeling of abandonment, God's also pouring out of him the supernatural, pouring it out of him. And I can't help but think, when I think of a specialist, when I think of somebody who experiences something like this, man, all this desert talk, I can't help but think of John the Baptist either. Luke 3, verses 1 and 2. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Traconis. 
Licinius was ruler over Abilene, Ananias and Sapphias were the high priests, and at this time a message from God came to John from son of Zechariah who was living. Now the Bible says in the wilderness, but you go look up that translation in the Greek. Go look it up in the Greek. What you'll find is that it's actually translated into three different words. This, this word that they're using. First word is desert. <laughs> Second word is desolate. And the third word is solitary. Solitary. John lived there. Oh, some of us, think about this. Moses was launched into the desert, came out with power, right? Elijah's lived in it, right? He kind of a series of his life for a season of his life was a desert time, right? John was born in it. John's born in it. Now, think about being in the desert and growing up in the desert. It's desolate, right? I mean, there it says he basically was all by himself. John grew up in the wild. Makes sense, right? He had no ministry training. <laughs> he hadn't been corrupted by the public living of his day. He was a wild man. Straight up wild man. He ate whatever the Lord provided and dressed like it too. He lived out in the desert alone. Alone with God. Out in the desert, I'm sure the process was much like Moses and Elijah. He experienced God in a way that few find in public. Have you ever noticed that John, I mean, I, I kind of threw this in there as a note. Have you ever noticed that John didn't come and try to culturally relate to anyone? He's the antithesis to our ministry today. You know that, right? Like today, we talk about being culturally relevant. I should dress in a certain way that you feel comfortable, and I should look at a certain way. We need to do our ministries in a way that wants to bring people to us. We should do all these things to make us culturally relevant. John's like the total opposite of that. I'm going to wear, like, you're wearing these nice robes, and you got your stuff. you got sandals on your feet. That's practical and everything. John just shows up like camel hair and leather waist. You know I mean? Like, dude, like, bro, does that thing even go around the sides? <laughs> I mean, you know, like, and he's eating locusts and honey. He's a crazy man. I, could, I mean, like, I could see his hair all ratted up because what does he care? He obviously is not about his looks. And he comes out preaching hard, right? I mean, he didn't change anything about himself. You know what else he didn't worry about? Anything he said. Man, he came in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says John was full of the Spirit of God in the womb. And then he comes out of the desert like a wild man, preaching however he wants to preach, saying whatever he wants to say. And you know what? They, they come, don't they? They come. I read a little something the other day that was talking about the same thing because I, I, I've always struggled with it. The, the Bible's so explicit that a man full of the Holy Spirit need not need marketing. John didn't need anybody to go out before him and say, hey, this is John the Baptist. You guys ought to probably come listen. Man, they came. And even when he called them, you brood of vipers, you snakes, who's even told you to come here? Like, they're like, yeah, we should probably tell more people. He's awesome. He's totally calling all the guys out. He's like, I mean, they just loved him. Right? It didn't take long. You know, the, the greatness of a preacher is only by the greatness of the Holy Spirit that fills him. And I, I mean, and I can tell you real easy, um, anytime you've got to hype something that up, I'd question whether how much Holy Spirit is really flowing. That's what worries me about marketing and advertising. At some point, what are we replacing here? Because I tell you, I promise you this, and it, I think history speaks of this. Great preaching doesn't need advertising. Man, when God's anointed a man and he's filled a man up full of the Holy Spirit, they will come. And the Bible just has proof after proof after proof. We're still reading the words of John the Baptist. 
If God wants to make somebody's voice known, He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need your... Oh, but I'm gifted in marketing and advertising. <laughs> I created marketing and advertising. I do it in a way that your text message and your cell phone don't work. I talk right into the brain. I got the straight line. I got the fast line. John's one of those gentlemen. I, like, I don't know if we'll ever relate to John, who lives in the desert and comes out. And then there's Jesus, right? The Bible records that the Spirit drove Jesus into the desert. Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and was there tempted by the devil. Thank you. Right? I mean, like, I don't even know about that one, right? What's the, what's the purpose of this desert? It's to be tempted by the devil. <laughs> I don't even know how to take that. Like, hey, Jim, I need you to walk this one. Devil's coming after you. I'm going to send him to you, and you're going to have to deal with these series of questions. Uh, time out. Let's get this straight. I mean, that's a hard one for me. Um, but isn't testing all part of desert training? Jesus walks into the desert, and, it, and the, the irony here is we, we can go through all the, the stuff that you can teach out of that, and, and we could, I could go in there and tell you about how he fought with the Word of God and all these things that, that is often teach. But if I wanted to break it down, really the main thing he's testing on is his identity. The devil approaches him twice and says, if you are the Son of God. And often, man, in our tempting in the finest place in the desert, we're always questioning who we are. Moses questioned who he was in the desert. Elijah finds himself questioning what he's really doing and if God is really for him. Now, John's a wild man, but there were times where John was sitting in the jail and had to question the guy he had just baptized. Is Jesus the one? See, our trials and our testing often tempt us to fall back against who we really are. The devil comes at us in our deserts. And the thing that he tests us is not, is, is there a God? That's without question. The question he'll test you with is, are you a child of God? Are you sure God is for you? Oh, see, he doesn't say God isn't for you. That'd be too obvious to fight back. He plants the seed of doubt. He asks you a question. He makes you start thinking about things like that. And for Jesus, this was his first desert. Listen, before anything starts, go, go, go back and read. Before anything starts, this is where it begins for Jesus. In the desert. His ministry is not really fully kicked off yet. It starts in the desert. And what happens when you have these moments, when, you, when you're being tested, when you're alone, or maybe, maybe we should ask, when was the last time that you've been alone or in the desert, right? Where it's only you and God. I mean, I know that Moses, Elijah, John, and Jesus, they, this is the one thing that they've all got in common. They've all had their desert moments in life. Solitude and silence, it becomes us and we're quiet. we quiet our hearts and we listen and we try to keep moving forward, but it's hard because we feel all alone. We feel the dryness. Jesus comes out of this wilderness in like the fullness of the Holy Spirit afterwards. It's actually not until he experienced this desert experience that he is propelled into ministry. From here, he begins a life of prayer intercession. From here, he begins to heal people. From here, he begins to raise the dead back to life. From here, he begins to do all sorts of miracles. But it all started first in the desert. Do you know who you are? And once he moved past that, it wasn't a matter of who I am. It's about what I'm here to do. That desert need not happen once again. His identity is secure. It's a matter of what comes next. 
Another sad truth is, is that we often experience more than one or two desert moments, right? Sometimes deserts are like once a year. It's depressing stuff, right? Sorry. Happy Easter. Luke 22, verse 39 and 46. Then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went to, as usual, to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. Now he walked away about a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed. Stone's throw. I don't know how far he can throw, but I picture Jesus as absolutely manly, at least 20, 30 yards. Totally manly. Within a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently, and, and was, he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood, and at last he stood up again and returned to the disciples, only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. Now here's another moment of solitude where even though Jesus finds himself surrounded by his friends, he is faced with what comes next. He's exhausted. Check this out. His friends are supposed to be praying. His friends. Not anybody, guys. Not like, oh, it's the church. So, like, you know how we give grace to people who never come to the prayer meeting, that kind of thing. It's not like that. You're my best friends, man. I just lived the last three years of my life with you. I need you to step and pray, man. The, the guy who tells you that, who you believe to be the son of God, tells you that. By the way, if you feel guilty because you don't always do what God says, the invisible God that you haven't fleshly met, think about the disciples now who actually knew and walked with Jesus, touched his face, who he tells, do this, and they don't do it. I mean, Judas has already taken the money, the fix is on, right? And so here is Jesus, his friends, all about him, who he's told, pray. Man, this thing is hard. What comes next is hard. I mean, like Easter is approaching, right? And so I've got all my friends around me, so pray. I've got to pray myself. Be praying, right? But the truth is, is what? That even amongst all our friends, Jesus is alone. They're all sleeping when they should be praying. Completely alone, right? And he's hurting so bad spiritually that he's sweating blood. Physical drops, literal blood. What's he experiencing? He's experiencing fear. <laughs> fear. Jesus is human, just as human as you and I. To take that away from him, that he might not have felt fear in that moment, you, you, you're trying to make him all God, which he is not. He is all God and yet all man at the same time. He feels everything we feel. You have to know that in that moment when he's going, by the way, he tells him twice. He gets back up after that moment and says, get back up, start praying, man. And I love it. In, in, that, in that one moment, right, it's like the crucible. There's, a, there's this little desert moment right there where he's having to face the test. Like the test to get you there has already taken place. You've been tempted by the devil. The idea of who you are is done. You know who you are, Jesus. Now you know what you must do, but I'm scared. But I'm not going to let my fear rule me in this moment. That's a desert moment for him, man. He's sitting there amongst his friends, but feeling all alone because they go to sleep when they should be praying. He's resolute. He says, thy will be done. Jesus approaching the cross. It's coming for him, man. And here's the thing, man. It's, it's coming for us, too. 
It's coming for us. We're supposed to carry it daily. If you ain't walking to your cross daily, we got issues. We got issues. Deserts are not a possibility in your life. They're absolutes. You, if you don't face one once a year, uh, I'd be really surprised. Where you're just dry. Where you need God to pour out a rain. Where you need something. Man, I'm going to tell you, I believe that the church is in a physical desert or spiritual desert right now. I mean, just all church, man. Like I said, the, I, it's easy for me to like pinpoint like the lights and all the makeup that she tries to wear and all the advertising. Listen, that's all because she is, she's depraved, man. She, is, she, she knows that she doesn't have the Holy Spirit right now poured on her like has been in the past, right? And because of that, she's trying to everything she can to make herself look as good as she can. And the sad, the, 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 the most saddest part, I think, of it all is the prettier, she, the prettier she tries to look to us, the more poverty she has. And so, like, I don't get mad when I say those things, by the way. I am upset for her. Because it really, Jesus clothes us in beauty. Our beauty is found in him when we look like him. He makes us beautiful, and we are in a desert, a spiritual desert right now in the church. The church needs the Holy Spirit again. It needs an outpouring like we haven't seen. These are absolutes. You're going to experience moments like this for your life. Some of you, you're going to be like Moses, man. It's going to be happenstance in your life, man. You're going to be running from your past. Maybe some of you still running from things from the past. But the hope is that you'll be like Moses. You'll find humility in your future. Find some peace there. Right? And maybe right in the moment where you become settled, like I've, I'm good with that now, maybe that's when your burning bush moment will happen. For some of you, you're going to be like Elijah, man. You're going to thrust into something big and terrifying. And on some days, you're as bold as I'll get out. And then there are going to be days where you're feeble and weak and crying out to God about how alone you are. And I'd like to say for some of you, you're going to experience what John experienced. But sadly, I'm not sure we see too many Johns. Cost is too high. John had no wife, no kids, no friends. I mean, he had a couple of disciples. That was really all that's ever said about John. And that was the, uh, John the Apostle and Andrew, Peter's brother. They hung out and just listened to every word that guy said, and that's about all they did. And, the, and the, the wonderful phrase that we, you know, say every year at graduation, behold the Lamb of God, even then John had to go, it's time for you to leave me too. John in his absolute selflessness just saying, the only two guys that are following me, I got to tell them to go to now. It's never about me, guys. And truthfully, he came out of the desert so full of fire and life that I'm not sure that had not his head be severed from him that he would have he overshadowed Jesus. Because he, he was, I mean, like, even when Jesus came around, what did they, what'd they accuse Jesus of? Oh, is this John come back? They thought that, <laughs> that John was that scary to them. They'd never seen anybody like John. Jesus was a whole lot, I want to say, more meek than John. John's bold and looked like a crazy man. Jesus at least looked like one of the people. John looked like nobody they'd ever seen. he come from the wild. What I love is that John's born under the priest, the Zechariah, the one of the high priest. You know, comes a high priest kid who looks like a crazy man. And in some ways, John's the bar, right? He's the standard. I pray that we all 
have like a desert experience like John where we come out so full of power and so full of the Holy Ghost. We might only have a six-month ministry, but may it rip a fire across this earth and make change. May it be the voice crying in the wind, making straight the way of God. Amen? Maybe that's why Jesus said John was born as the greatest man of a, born of a woman. Then there's Jesus, right? His road to the cross is we're approaching Easter, who in all fashion experienced everything just like us. Jesus understands your desert. I mean, he's there in the silence with us. It's, it's there in the silence that you're going to find him talking and counseling and spiritually giving us advice and helping us. Why? Because he knows, man. Right? He knows. Most of us never come out of the desert, the first desert, like he did, knowing who we are. <clears throat> it's like this perpetual desert periodically in our life. By the way, most of the reason that you still struggle with identity is because you've never sat down in a desert long enough to deal with it. Let me be honest. The, the truth of the matter is, is that we're so... I, let, me, let me start here. Well, I heard this the other day, and it was so good. And, it, and it's given me a lot of thought for pause. And the funny thing, it came from a guy who's not a Christian at all. He's a, uh, I wouldn't call him an atheist, but he's a crude uh, kind of a comedian, was on a late night show, uh, late night talk show, and he talked about how he was sitting in his car, and he was sitting in traffic, and he had turned the radio off, and he's sitting there in the silence, and he talked about this loneliness that began to come over him, and everybody's laughing because he's a comedian. And he's telling this story. He goes, yeah. And I just like, I could feel it coming, man. I just started crying. He goes, and I just like weeped. I just let it come in. Just invited the loneliness in. And I just weep, man. Sometimes you just got to cry. It felt good to cry. He says, and, and he says, you know what? I think that's what we're missing today. We just try to, and, and what's funny is everybody's laughing. He's like, yeah, man, we just, we just avoid the loneliness today. We keep ourselves so busy and so entertained that we never really fully embrace the loneliness that's in us. And you know what's sad to me? This guy's not a Christian at all, but even he knows something is missing here. And all I can help think is, what do you think we're doing in the church, man? We, we think if we can keep you so busy, we can keep you. Listen, 80% of the people who work in the church stay in the church. So we're always trying really hard. Like statistically, we, we look at those statistics, and, and, and pastors, we, as we as pastors go, we just got to keep you busy. Because if you sit down for long enough and try to, that loneliness creeps up on you because we don't want to deal with that. That is messy. It's easier to keep you busy than deal with you emotionally, just being honest. And so that's what we do. Why do you think we only have like one potluck a month? Because relationships are messy. I mean, that's what most church, I mean, like seriously, if you put that many people in the room, it's really, I mean, it can get messy. Uh, look at every epistle. <laughs> every epistle, it's messy. The more people are together, the more people, and, and by the way, the church in, in the epistles is not the church that we understand today. It's a whole lot of people meeting at homes who have issues. I love how, like, remember when we talked about you who were once homosexuals, you who were once who were committing adultery and in lust and da-da-da-da. He's not talking about somebody we're going out to save, guys. He's talking about people that are actually in the house at that moment who uh, were formerly homosexuals, who were formerly committing adultery, who were formerly prostitutes, who were formerly in these things, right? So there's already this mess stuff going on. And the more it's like, hey, we all have this love for Jesus, and then we, we, we confuse that identity and our love for Jesus having a common trait with one another. And because we're so close, it creates... Uh, improper intimacy that was in the church that he's having to deal with through Corinthians, right? And he's having to deal with all these things. 
And at the end of the day, why? Why are, why are we so keeping ourselves busy? Why are we creating all these relationships? Because we're constantly trying to fill that lonely void. If I can keep you busy long enough, if I can keep you turn on the radio and keep you singing, if I can get you to watch this movie, if I can get you to help do things around here, and if we can do this outreach, you know, and I can keep you busy five, six days a week, and if I can do all these things, then maybe just for a second I can keep that loneliness at bay so that you never have to deal with your identity issue. Man, what I love about the Bible is it just, it just like drives head on at things. There's like no escape in the life. Jesus just, I'm going to the desert for 40 days so I get this thing worked out. John, I'm going to live in the desert. When he comes out, he, he talks like nobody, like, like nobody taught him that when you say things that are hurt and offensive, that people might get mad and want to cut off your head. Uh, I'm glad he stayed in the desert and didn't learn that. Think about that. I'm, I'm glad Elijah had those lonely moments where he was so scared in one moment and so bold the next. I mean, we live off the stories of God interacting with such things. I'm glad Moses, I'm not, I, I feel bad for him that he murdered somebody, but I'm glad he had 40 years in Midian to take all that junk that he had learned from the Egyptians, trash it, and God pour something new in him. Just like I'm glad for every desert I experience where I'm forced to face my own loneliness. I'm forced to face my own pride. Can I, man, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I'm, I'm in my own desert right now. Now, it doesn't mean I'm spiritually dry. I feel like God's still talking to me in a lot of ways through the desert because I think this is the time to listen. But can I tell you, like, my, like my, and I'll just share with you, you know, just, just being honest and open. My, my desert right now is really dealing with my own pride. You know, how do I, I don't think anything I did formally with a lot of the things God has shown me today, what do I see? Well, today I see that the way that I was doing things, you know, two or three years ago, some of that's not right. Like, like biblically, like I was letting the left hand know what the right hand was doing. I was being braggadocious about outreaching and making sure my name was out there amongst youth pastors and amongst all these groups and stuff and that I was well known. One of the things I said to my wife the other day uh, uh, as I've been meditating on these things and chewing on this thing was, you know what? I feel like I've lost my grip on the city because I've laid in the shadows not, and have not put myself out on the forefront or done things so everybody could see us. And then I begin to question this. And this is, this is, this is, this is, this is, where I, this is the desert as it's teaching me. Then I begin to go... Is it pride that wants to be known? And the thing is, is, is I also remember Jeremiah, that the heart is deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? And man, I think that there's times for me where it is pride. Because I want to be known as such a way, or have a reputation that says as such. Now, do I want that for God, or do I want that for me? And that becomes the question of my own heart. The one I have to deal with. The one that the devil's constantly going, you know it's all you. You know it's all about you, right? You did this all for you. like, And there might be some times where I have. And then there's some times where I'm not. I can't dismiss everything I did as bad because I don't think that's the case. But I have to discern in my own heart, and that's what the desert does. The de desert forces me to face things. Elijah sat holed up, never wanting to go outside the cave. They're going, she's, Jezebel is going to come cut my head off. You will go face them. And sometimes that's what we have to do. Jesus is like, if thy cup can pass, but nevertheless thy will.
I'm going to hit it head on. Moses said, um, send someone else. God said, I sent you. You see where I'm going? I mean, that's the desert. The desert, you're going to have to face your pride. The desert, you're going to have to face uh, the loneliness deep inside of you. The desert, the desert pulls out these things. Constantly, constantly shaping you, constantly molding you, constantly. Dude, sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes you see things that are crazy. Sometimes they're so supernatural, right? Isn't that the hope? Is my hope out of this desert season that I'm in is that I'm going to come out of it and see like an Elijah moment or come out of it and see like a burning bush moment, come out of it and see a revival moment. That's what I'm hoping for. For you, what's that look like for you? Now, that's up to you. How well you deal with it. Do you chew on it or do you entertain yourself away so that you never have to ask these questions to yourself? Be careful because we can be so busy that we never really get to the heart of what God is calling us to do and who God is calling us to be. It's so easy just to let life keep moving and you stay oblivious to who you are and what you're here for. And man, can you imagine if, if Moses said, man, I ain't got time for that bush. Dude, I got to get this flock down the hill and back to Midian. Can you imagine if he'd have said that? That'd be the end of the, the Jews. <laughs> be still in Egypt, man. Would be no Jesus story. Would be no nothing, right? Can you imagine if Elijah just stayed in the cave? Oh, I'm all alone, God. I'm just gonna sit here. I'm gonna sit here and die. And listen, by the way, he wanted to. He just wanted to sit. No, he's pushed out, isn't he? What if John never comes out of the desert? What if Jesus never makes it out of the desert? At some point, we have to face it. I love how it said the Spirit drove him into it. Like, you don't have a choice. You need to go. This is where it begins for you, Jesus. For John, it begins as a baby. He doesn't even give the choice. Right? For Elijah, it seems like he's given, he's thrust into it. It's like time dictates. We need somebody at this moment, and you said you're willing. Like, a lot, you know, Isaiah says, here I am, God. That's his testing right there. What does he see in his desert? Is, you know, if you read the first of Isaiah, it's a desert time for the whole Israel, right? He says, there's nobody. God says, I looked out, there's no one, right? And what does Isaiah say? Here I am, pick me. And what has to happen for him? Cole's got to touch his lips before he can move forward. We're going to have to deal with your mouth, Isaiah, because you ain't ready to say the things. You don't have a clean enough mouth to say the things that we need to say. I mean, what's your desert moment? And what is keeping you distracted from your desert?